RMA would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Dharawal people. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people listening today. I think anyone who's done a trail run has seen this huge long list of mandatory equipment that they have to carry and they're like they want to ditch as much of it as they can and minimise that as much as they can because of the weight and blah, blah, blah. But there's a reason why we're asked to take that equipment. And I think um, there's there's plenty of videos out there, or we'll make one even if we have to, about, um, you know, why we why we take this equipment and, and how and when you should use it. And, and also know your first aid. So this is, comes into that preparation. It's not always just about the gear that you take with you but I think every parent every person every trail runner should have up-to-date first aid even in the air that's not even talking about extreme snow it's not even talking about um, extreme conditions three hours you can start to if not die at least go into shock if you add an injury into that you can start to have some real serious sequelae and and I think you know, yes, we're talking doom and gloom here, but you've just explained to everybody just how quickly things can just go wrong. And and even when you are in a, in a populated area, it's not about being remote as in miles from anywhere. It's about being remote as in how hard it is to access you. Hello, welcome to season two of the RMA podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Bunyan. We are excited to share inspiring stories of amazing everyday women who are using running as a vehicle to connection and change in their lives. We want to share the impact of these powerful stories with you, how running can free you, challenge you, help you believe in yourself and lead you to places you never thought possible. Thank you for listening to these powerful stories. We're excited to have you on the journey with us one step at a time. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the RMA podcast. Today on the RMA podcast, I have a very special guest for you, one of our RMA community ambassadors, Tova Gallagher. Tova joined RMA many years ago, and it's been a privilege watching Tova's journey over the past few years. I don't think you would ever meet someone so interesting as Tova. She started her athletic career in endurance horse riding and has moved on to trail running and adventures through regaining and orienteering. To add to Tova's many amazing running experiences, she has also got a really interesting career. Tova started as a virologist and then she was a personal trainer, which she still does on the side. She's also a wellness coach, and now she works for the Rural Fire Service in Aviation Rescue. Tova has been passionate in this role, and she brings a wealth of knowledge to our community. And so I wanted to have her on the podcast today to talk specifically about how we can be safe on the trails. The background to this story is a few weeks ago, my husband and I went out to the Glenbrook National Park here in Sydney trails we've run on many times before however my husband wanted to try a new trail that we hadn't been on before and I wasn't keen on going on this trail but he decided that he wanted to have a go at it 
Unfortunately, he didn't have adequate safety gear with him that day. And it was only a matter of 10, 15 minutes that Mark was lost and stuck on a cliff face and needing to be rescued. That experience left both of us quite shaken. It could have been much worse. And I'm sure that, you know, our story was a great ending. There was a really good outcome, but there's many people whose stories aren't the case. And it taught us a really good lesson in safety and what we really need to be carrying on the trails with us. Even when we think that we aren't remote, our location can make us remote in terms of getting access. And that's why it's super important that we are prepared when we head out in any type of trail run, in the gear that we carry, also being aware of our surroundings, the weather, making sure we tell someone where we're going, and also knowing where we are. Tova speaks to us today about her experiences as a running mum and how she's got into the role that she does now and some highlights of that role as well. But we talk also in the latter part of this podcast specifically around trail safety. This is a really, really important podcast that I've wanted to record for quite a long time. And now that I have experienced this firsthand, how important this is, I would love if you could share this episode with your friends so that everybody who heads out on the trails is prepared. Let me introduce you to Tova Gallagher. Before we begin, a message from this week's sponsor, Physiocram Massage Gel. Physiocram has been helping Running Mums Australia to achieve their running goals for years now and ease those post-training muscular aches and pains. Hurting sucks and Physiocram has our back. To get your own Physiocram, head to www.physiocram.com.au. Don't forget, if you're a member of the member program, you can get 20% off with your member code. You can also find Physiocram at your local pharmacy. Hi, Tova. Welcome to the RMA podcast. Hi, Nicole. Great to see you. It's so good to see you and I feel like we haven't seen each other in person for a while now and I love when I do bump into you out on the trails or at a race or sometimes like in in conspicuous places like um, one of the last times was the Rogaine during lockdown, which you were thankfully at because you helped us uh, find some controls that we couldn't find (laughs) in the dark. And that's why I actually really wanted you on the podcast because you've been in RMA for such a long time. You're one of our community ambassadors, but you're an amazing person and woman. And this podcast is about showcasing all of the stories of different women in RMA. And you're a super interesting one because you've been running for a long time. You always try your hand at so many different things. And this has led you on a really great and exciting journey in your personal life and also in your career. So Welcome to the podcast. And before we dive into exactly where this has led you in your career and your journey, I guess, with adventure and fitness and what have you, uh, do you want to just give the listeners a little bit of background about you? Well, um, my name's Tova and I'm a single mum of a beautiful 12-year-old boy called AJ and he lives half of his life with, uh, well, half of his week with me and half of his week with his dad, um, who lives not very far from here. I'm the Hawkesbury RMA ambassador. So I live on a beautiful five acres in the foothills of the Wollamai National Park, which is not 
sort of northwest of Sydney um, and borders onto the Blue Mountains National Park. So the end of my road, I think you could go for, I think it's 174 kilometres through to Singleton and that's all scrubland and bushland from the end of my road. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I'm sure you'll get into, I work for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service as an aviation officer. Um, I haven't always been an aviation officer. As you said, I've had, uh, I love adventures and Mm -hmm. Nicole's giving me this beautiful bracelet that says adventure. I think that you just know me 100%. I started off, I was a virologist when I left school um, and I was, would you believe I was the uh, scientific advisor to the chief medical officer on rare and emerging infectious diseases? No way. Uh, yes, way. <laughs> Aren't I glad I don't do that anymore? <laughs> oh, you dodged a bullet there. <laughs> I did. Um, and then I became a personal trainer full-time when uh, AJ was young and that was just a bit more of a portable career. And um, we'll get into it as we go through um, at the podcast how I became an aviation, aviation officer in the RFS. But mm. that's what I do now. Wow. Wow. Well, what a varied and interesting life so far, Tova. I mean, a virologist and now working for the Rural Fire Service, flying in helicopters and doing all sorts of different missions and rescues. Like I have to pinch myself. My life is an adventure and part of that's obviously because I create my life as an adventure, but yeah. it's also about uh, taking the opportunities um, when they're there and, and just exploring every avenue and I think that's that's definitely something that I think it's a, it's really incredible to have lived this life. I'm only halfway through it, yeah. I hope. <laughs> but I'd also like to inspire other RMA and other women and other people to, to, to do the same with their lives. Yeah, well, since I've met you, you've stood out as one of those women that sort of do just create that adventure and go after it and and I look up to you, Tova, because not only have you done that successfully, and I'm sure there's been lots of learnings along the way and ups and downs, things don't always just go the way you want to, but you have to work hard and you've done that. But you've done it as a single mom as well, which is so inspiring to lots of women who I'm sure are listening to know that you can still do these things even as a single mom. Um, what before we get into the running journey, like what are some of the things that's, uh, that you've learned on your journey as a single mum that have allowed you to, I guess, follow that path and succeed in what you wanted to set out for yourself? Um, well, I guess I haven't always been a single mum, but, no. um, you know, uh, since I've become a single mum, yeah, learning from, learning from, you know, becoming a single mum is, is hard. Um, because obviously you don't ever go into a relationship or marriage or, or parenthood thinking that you want it to to not work out, obviously. And so it, it's really hard for everyone involved um, when a relationship breaks down and, and you do become a single person. And I guess you have to go through a journey of, um, you know, mourning and grieving uh, that relationship and, and what you thought your life was going to be, but then also exploring the opportunities and and the changes in your life um, and, and where they might lead you. And I think running has been uh, just so good for that. It gives you that time to go out, be on your own, be self-reliant and just think and to, you know, mull over different possibilities and to meet other people and, and to, to just, um, I guess, for all of that stuff to get processed in your head um, 
uh, as, as you move through from one adventure to another, from one stage in your life to another. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like I'm very fortunate in that, you know, my son is very well balanced and a very healthy young man and um, he, he's equally happy. You know, we live in the same area, so he's able to, to move between houses quite seamlessly. Um, but obviously we've created that for him as well. And so, yeah, as you said, you do need to work hard towards these you need the, these things and you need to work hard to, towards creating the relationships and the journeys that are important to you. And that, and I also um, I'm a qualified wellness coach as well um, as a PT. And I think um, some of the techniques that I that I employ with my clients, um, journaling and journaling and self reflection and constant personal development as well as professional development, um, have definitely helped me to navigate some of the changes. I've been through some pretty tough stuff that um, not a lot of people know about, like we all have, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, not just, you know, becoming a single parent, but other stuff that, that has happened earlier in my life. And, and I think, you know, as you said, you learn from that, but it's, it's, it's processing that well and, and, and trying to, to bring out of that, you know, the kind of person that you want to go and, that, and the, the, the things out of that that you can take forward and what works for you and is going to help you to live your best life. Mm, I love that. And I love that you bring your son along for so many of your adventures as well. Um, because, you know, my kids are not interested in coming with me. And I don't know if he's interested either, but I'm sure he is. I mean, he seems interested, but maybe at first there's hesitation, but he seems to enjoy it when he's out there. And, you know, especially with the road games that you do, um, I think it's just is really great that you immerse him in those experiences um, because it teaches our kids so much about themselves. Um, yeah, I think that park run is the thing for that, hey, for yeah, kids. Yeah. Like when he was little and I started him on the park run journey, you know, he's like, oh, it's so hard, I'm puffed. Well, yes, darling, it's hard and sometimes things are hard and you need to persevere and you need to work hard and, and you need to get through that and then it'll finish and then we can go and have orange juice and, and lollies, you know, we can have a treat. <laughs> Right. And I think that that road game that we saw you in the middle of the night, it was dark and it was wet and it was raining and the tide was in and we couldn't find um, number 82, I seem to remember. Um, yeah, he wasn't exactly happy about that because it was bedtime and it was dark and it was wet and it was a hill and we couldn't find the, the control. Um, but when we did go on to find it and then I promised him that once we got through that you know, log-strewn, leech-infested gully that we would get up onto it onto a track again and into some um, urban row gaining, it was fine because he had learnt that lesson. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget that night. Man, thank goodness Tova was there. That's all I can say. We learned that we are not very good at reading with a map and compass and we're still waiting for our lesson from you, Tova. We have to organise a row gaining compass map reading. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll do it. Ties <laughs> in for our theme today, which you know, the podcast is talking about child safety. So we all should really be able to use a map and compass if we're going to be heading out on the trails. I can use it like briefly, but I'm, I'm not very good at the Rogaine part that I was trying to do. Um, let's go back now and just talk about how you started running. So where did running enter your life? Uh, so I grew up in Canberra. 
um, but my dad was an academic, so he, he did work overseas a little while. So I was very lucky to be able to live overseas a couple of times when I was young. And uh, when we lived over in the UK, my parents dabbled a little bit in some running and half marathons. Um, it was their together time and they enjoyed it. And my dad, who's now nearly 75, is still an avid runner. Um, yeah, mum and dad both enjoyed doing a little bit um, when they had the time when we lived in the UK, but dad is now very, very into it, um, very avid runner and still loves doing it. Um, I, in fact, my first ever competitive race was the Maid Marion one-mile race in about well, early 1980s um, in, in Nottingham Forest. So that was my very first introduction wow. to running. Dress like as Maid Marion or something? No, no. I had my, my Australia blue, green and gold um, shorts and such because, you know, my, um, I was from Australia. I was just some little kid from Australia. I found it really hard actually, but... Um, yeah, and at school I was terrible at thing, anything with ball skills. I have no ball skills, no hand-eye coordination. So the only thing that I could kind of not fail at was the cross-country. Yeah. In fact, I think my, my year eight PE teacher, he wanted to fail me um, for sport, for PE. And I think his boss, I've been told his boss said to him, no, no, you can't, you can't fail her. She tries so hard. Uh -huh. um, and cross-country was the one thing I, I didn't fail at, even though I really wasn't uh, a runner at that stage. Um, I have to say when we had our 10-year or 20-year school reunion, it was really nice to send in a copy of my Young Australian of the Year finalist award for excellence in sport. That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, so, yeah, in the high school years I started horse riding and I guess I got into that because if something scares me or if I'm not good at it, I kind of, I, I, I attack it. It's like if I'm, if I'm scared of heights, I learn how to jump out of helicopters. If I'm scared of speed and horses, then I become a professional ultramarathon endurance rider um, for 15 years on horseback. That's just kind of my mindset. <laughs> uh -huh. So um, yeah, I started riding horses and I became an endurance rider. So that's basically like a trail runner, but mm -hmm. on horseback. And you probably heard the um, the Tevis Cup, which is a hundred mile horse race in the U USA, um, became the Western States Endurance Race, which I mean, if anyone who's heard anything, knows anything about trail running has heard of Western States. One day someone's horse was you know, not very 100%. So he decided he was going to run the, the Tevis Cup, which is the 100-mile horse race. And he ran that race. And from that was born the Western States um, Endurance Race, which is 100 miles. And, and the Tevis Cup still runs today. Um, and endurance horse racing is huge worldwide. Um, a lot of people never heard of it, but it is huge worldwide. And I got to travel all over the world as um, a, a groom and a, and a trainer and, a, and, a, and as a, uh, a rider, you know, uh, got to go to Dubai and the UK and all over Europe and, and, um, and New Zealand and everywhere in Australia uh, riding, which was fantastic. I did over 10,000 competitive Ks um, of competition and that doesn't count. Like if your horse has a little bit of a sore leg or a bit of a grumbly tummy or something, you're out, you didn't complete um, mm. because obviously, you know, animal welfare is, is, is mm. huge in that sport. You can't push yourself like a marathon runner or an ultramarathon runner can push themselves to the point of hospitalisation and it's on them. But if you're a rider, you have to be able to judge your horse's speed and condition and their, their heart rate and their level of effort and, and get them to the end in a 
in what we call fit to continue. They need to be at a level where they could go out and do another 40 kilometres and, and not, not have a big deal. So those events were anything from 80 kilometres was the smallest one up to 400, I think, was the biggest one that I ever did back yeah. then. So that's kind of how I got into, you know, being out on the trails and such. But oh. how I got into running, that's a funny story. Tell me the story. Well, before we start that story, like I'm just, I didn't know that. I don't think I knew that about you, Tova, that you were so high in that sport that you competed all over the world. I never knew. I knew that you dabbled in horses and riding, but that's just so interesting and fascinating. Like, wow. That's yeah, incredible. so I actually wasn't um, heavy enough to compete um, at world level. Yep. I did qualify for a world championships once by carrying some insane amount of lead. <laughs> um, I wasn't heavy enough. Um, but I went as a groom and mm. I, I rode the horses in competition here in Australia to prepare them for overseas competition. I rode in what they call the lightweight division. So um, a lot of endurance riders out there would say I wasn't a real rider because I wasn't big enough. But um, I, I still did, you know, the 100-mile races and I still um, had to, you know, jump off my horse and walk up and down the really scrambly trails. And a lot of the trails that we do now as trail runners in Australia are also the same trails that we've done um, endurance riding on as well. All the same trails and some of the same people even. Wow, it's incredible, isn't it? Like I can, I mean, that's to me, that's terrifying because I mean, some of the trials that I've done, I think, wow, imagine being on a horse doing that. Like, well, usually you get off. You get off if it's really scrambly. You get off and and you you lead or, or follow your horse yeah. through those trails, which is, I guess, how you sort of become a, a runner is you just take the horse away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, let's talk about how the running happened. Like, let's talk about that funny story. What? Tell us it. <laughs> well, I was a personal trainer. Well, I still am, but I was a full-time personal trainer. And there was this, um, I did a, a 5.30 morning cycle class and there was this um, fellow who was a personal trainer in the gym and I worked for a, in a private gym where the fellow wasn't one of those chain gyms that was privately owned and the fellow was really encouraging to new personal trainers and he gave us all our start in life and he was just this, still is this most incredible man who, who always gave people um, an opportunity. And another personal trainer had decided to go into direct competition with him and um, there was a lady who was doing my 5.30 cycle class who wanted to run a half marathon and that that was her, her annual, her goal for the year. And she trained with this other fellow and he said to her, if you want to run a half marathon, you can't do spin classes. And so she would get on the treadmill at 5.30 in the morning beside the spin class and she would slog it out on the treadmill, watching her friends having a great time doing our crazy spin class. And I just felt so, so much for her that, you know, cross training is so important. Um, Strength training is so important and doing exercise that you love and with people that, you know, that, that community spirit is so important. I just felt for her that he wasn't, wasn't prepared to let her continue to do some cross training and join her friends in the, in the spin class. So this was on a Wednesday morning at 5.30. So that night I went home and I signed up for the Naranek 20-kilometre trail run in Katoomba which was four days later. And apart from jumping off my horse to, you know, run up or down a hill or walk up and down a steep section in endurance riding, 
which I hadn't been endurance riding for a few years at this point. I'd never, you know, run more than my Maid Marianne half, my, my Maid Marianne mile. Like I wasn't yeah. really a runner. Mm. Um, so I just decided that, well, I'll show him cross training does work. And being, you know, somebody who goes to the gym, she did PT with him every week. You know, she also ran and she did her spin class. And I went out there and I ran that 20 kilometres in, uh, in, the, in the mountains in Katoomba and you're nodding there because you know every little hill and every little rock and you know it's not a very easy 20 no. kilometres. And it's dark as well. That's and it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I ran that trail and then six days later I went out and did my first half marathon out at Bathurst. I did that flat road half marathon. And um, that's how I got into running was to just flog myself around to 20K, 21K races in six days because, well, I'll show him that she can get out there and enjoy her, 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 um, her cross training and her, her spin classes as well as doing PT and mm-hmm. <laughs> her treadmill. So there you wow. go. I got into running to spite somebody basically. <laughs> <laughs> So did she end up signing up for the half marathon she and do did. it? She did do it and she I think she did a couple actually and she was so proud of herself and she did love it. And that's what I loved seeing was the fact that she loved it. I just wished she could have loved the training as, as much. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, that's such a great important lesson. I mean, we, we don't have to and we've all learned over our time as runners that it's not all about the running. Like to be an endurance runner, um, particularly – Yes, you have to do running, of course. However, cross training is so important. You know, get out on the bike, go for hikes, you know, do some strength work, do some yoga, have some stretching, like go for a swim. Like all of it is important. A whole, I guess, approach to wellness. Uh, it's come, I, I think it's changing as time goes on um, in endurance circles. It's not just about running. And I know myself when I've tried to do it just about running, I end up broken. <laughs> Um, and I don't enjoy it. <laughs> so, you know, just, yeah, mix it up a little bit. Um, so you are a PT as well and you are a wellness coach and you've, like, over the years done some incredible races and adventures. Can you tell us some of your favourite events that you have been in or even if they're not events, just some of your favourite moments as an endurance runner? Well, I have to say... That's a really hard question because, you know, every time you go out, you know, you love you love it, but you also learn from it. And when we say learn, we mean we, there are hard times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing about what we do is we get to choose our hard. Mm-hmm. We get to choose, you yeah. know, each day we get to choose, well, I've chosen to sign up for this race or this, this weather or this hill or wherever it is. And I guess anyone who's read a little bit of Mark Manson will know where that come from. Um, but I, I, I couldn't think of one particular race that I love the most, but I love the, I love park run. Everyone loves park run. It's great. But I love the 100 kilometer distance mm. and I've always loved a hundred kilometer distance. I, I don't know if it's a metric thing. Um, I love that um, in 100 kilometers you have long enough, to learn and to suffer and for it to be hard but also to have some great periods where you just cruise and you get low and it's beautiful scenery because I mostly um, tend to run trails but it's also short enough that you can go home that night 
yeah. so I like that too. Yeah. Even somebody who's, you know, I, I tend to, to hike a lot um, and, and go a little bit short, uh, a bit slower. I can still do 100 k's in 24 hours. It's not a two night adventure. So I do, I do love that. I, I love anything um, trail pretty well. Anything that gets me out, seeing new places, meeting new people, and um, just breathing the air and experiencing nature you know the, the weather and and everything that nature has to bring that that's mm -hmm. that is my favorite it's anything yeah. trail <laughs> oh, I'm so with you there I mean even today I was on a chat this morning and you know in Sydney right now this week it's just been rain and rain and rain and I was talking to some of my friends uh, on the chat this morning about running what we were going to do this weekend and I was like oh some of them are like, oh, I'm just going to run on the treadmill. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to do this. And I thought, oh, yeah, I might just run mine on the treadmill too. And and then I looked outside. There was a little bit of a, like, break in the heavy rain. And I thought, you know what? I actually really want to get out in the rain. Like, I really want to feel the weather. Like, it's not dangerous. It's not a storm. It's just rain. It's really wet underfoot. I'll go where it's kind of, you know, it's safe. But I just wanted to feel the trail in that weather again. Like it just fills my soul. I don't care that it's raining. I couldn't care less. I just whipped my shirt off. I had my crop on and I was saturated from head to toe and I was in absolute heaven. I just yep. thought this is awesome. So you know, I can understand that feeling because I'm with you. Once I started trail running, I just felt like I came alive. Like I just love it. Um, it's really my why and it just brings me so much joy when I get out there. So I love that you said that. And I mean, what is it about like all the races that you were done and even maybe some of the hundred kilometer events that you've done, you've done alongside other women on the trail or friends. Like I know you used to run a few events with one of your close friends. What do you love about seeing other women out on the trails and, and being empowered in that way? I love that everyone can do it. I love that you can be a parent, you can be a younger person, younger girl, younger, you know, all men, you know, same, all male, um, or you can be an older person and everyone can get out there and have their own, choose their own heart. Everyone can. Um, I love, particularly, you know, with Parkrun, you can choose your own challenges with that. You can go for the fastest 5K, you can go for your alphabet parkrun alphabet you can go for 30 parkruns in a year you can get the kids out there the little dogs out there you can do whatever it is um and that we can all get out there and celebrate the fact that everyone has their has chosen their own heart has chosen their own challenge they've embracing it and everyone can win i love that i mean yes if you go to an organized event somebody's going to win um their, their age category or their gender or their overall or whatever but everyone can win because everyone is out there um, having their own adventure. I remember um, doing this Rogaine once. It was um, a, it was a 29-hour bush Rogaine, so no trails, no trails. It was a couple of dirt roads to get in and out, but it's all these huge big mountains. It was minus 7 degrees, so it was just the most delightful conditions. <laughs> and um, we were about to set out for 29 hours in the scrub and hoping that you know we'd all you know end up safe and alive at the end of it yeah. and i saw these three little old ladies and i don't know how they how old they were but they were um i don't know probably 
probably pushing 70. So I don't want to say, you know, little old ladies really because they were fit, um, strong women and they had their massive big packs on. So we were stripped down to the minimum that we could carry to try and get out there and win our category. They had their big packs with their thermoses and their thermorests and they were out there for a, a 29 hours of adventure. And these three little old ladies, we did see them later on in, in, the, in the course. Um, they'd gone sort of, you know, out and around in a small loop and we'd done a larger loop and then we crossed over with them lately, later on. And they were having a fantastic time. They were out there. They camped out in the scrub overnight and they were out there doing this huge, enormous championship-level Rogaine mm -hmm. and with their packs and their cups of tea. And mm -hmm. I just thought, well, there you go. This sport is for everyone and yeah. I can do this sport forever. Yeah. And I was just like, that, that, that's it. This is the most thing, amazing, wonderful, empowering thing ever is that everyone can do this. And, and like you say, like, you know, my son's been um, joining me as my Rogaine buddy because most Rogaines over three hours, you, you must have a partner. Um, and he's been joining me. I think he's done three or four years of, of joining me as my Rogaine partner now. The longest one he's done is six hours. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine asking, uh, I think he was 10 when he did his six hour and a 10 year old to go out for six hours walking in the bush yeah. off trail, carrying his own pack. And he did not whinge for six hours. He did 25 kilometers. Wow. Absolutely incredible. I mean, at the end, he's like, geez, my feet hurt, mum. <laughs> but <laughs> I bought him a pizza. That was the, that was the carrot at the end. You can have a pizza. But, you know, like what a life experience yeah. For, yeah. For, for him as, as a 10-year-old as a to be going out and walking that far, but also to see then the other end of the scale, these, these three women carrying full packs for 29 hours in the most horrific weather mm. and having a great time empowering themselves and each other. I just thought, wow, it's for everyone and that's what I love about it. Oh, I love that. Let's talk about the Rogaining. Like, how did you get into Rogaining? Well, Rogaining is like, if anyone's heard of orienteering or done that at school, Rogaining is like orienteering on steroids. So mm. orienteering is um, 45 minutes. It's um, a lot of school kids do it. It's a school sport. And pretty well every um, town in, in Australia, all over the world, it's huge. If you've any, ever read Hanny Olsen's book or anything like that, it's huge worldwide. But Rogaining, instead of having a set course where you go from one marker to another, there are um, markers out in the bush and each marker has a, a value, a score, um, based on how hard it is to get to and how hard it is to navigate to. So if it's a long way away or up a big hill or down a big valley, it might have more points that one is closer to the hash house. And if it's really um, tricky navigation, so for example, it's, not a very well-defined gully. It's just sort of a, a bit of an indentation on the map or something like that. It might have more points as well. And it's up to you to choose how far you think you can go in the allotted time and how many points you can get So as a team. So it's, uh, um, I kind of, I think I like it because I'm not very fast. It's, it's about brains as well as speed. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you've got the brains, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, so that's what Rogaining is and it's, it's around everywhere, like all over the world and Australia has it in every state and territory. 
um, you can you can just um, Google it and um, ha go and have a have a try. They're doing their three hour have a tries. I think New South Wales. It's on tomorrow actually. Oh, is um, it? Oh. At Cherry Brook. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna be working, but it's it's something that everyone can get out and grab a friend and go and do. Mm -hmm. um, so I got into it through my remote area firefighting team. So um, yeah, I guess we haven't really gone into my remote area firefighting yet, but um, we decided to do it as a training exercise for, for the team and we, we entered this, uh, it's called Nav Shield. it's like an emergency services competition and it's police and ambulance and um, it's the Defence Force and um, SES and RFS and everyone can, can join mm -hmm. and you must carry a full survival pack so you can't, um, there is the, the mandatory equipment is, is for, for overnight um, survival so it's more than you would carry for a trail run or something like that and I think um, I carried the lightest pack in my team and mine was 12 kilos so yeah. it's, it's a reasonable it's a proper backpacker like a proper mm -hmm. camping backpack mm -hmm. um, so it's a hundred square kilometers usually and it's usually in mountainous terrain so you know Wombian caves or um, uh, up in the in the really gnarly parts of the Blue Mountains or the Wallamaya or you know anywhere Barrington it's usually in a very remote, very beautiful spot. Um, it's in the middle of winter and we decided we'd go and do the 29-hour event because, you know, why would you start your very first row game with the with the eight-hour the eight option? Why would you do that? Like... <laughs> in a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that was, that was my introduction and I did that for a few years and we really enjoyed it and, um, you know, sort of... My, uh, our, our, our team and another team, uh, the, the Southern Tablelands team, we always used to sort of jockey for the at winning our category. Um, and it's great team building and it's it's fantastic um, training exercise and we bring new people in and, and use it as a training exercise for them. And we love doing it. And um, I don't even remember how I decided to get into doing regaining just as a sport, but somehow I did. Um, just decide to go and do regaining just I think just to keep my my own fitness up and my own navigation skills because um, I'm a, a navigation instructor for the RFS in my district so mm. when in New South Wales so um, yeah I just decided to, to start doing it um, to keep my skills honed I suppose and yeah then I really got into it enjoyed it met new friends traveled around New South Wales and mm. um, choosing my challenge it's great i mean i i mean we only did um so that was a three hour road game that night that we did and it was just something new during lockdown we saw it and we thought that'd be fun i think we knew that you had signed up maybe you shared it and we thought we should do it i can't remember how we found it um but it was super fun like um we didn't really know what we were doing most of the time i was pretty good at reading the map because I had a trail on there <laughs> and I did <laughs> sort of know the area because I run around the Loftus trails a lot. Um, but in terms of navigating <laughs> and actually, you know, mapping a proper route that was probably and finding the controls, we weren't so great at. So, and I think it's great that you used those skills. Uh, you used that, you know, the row gaining to help develop your skills in your work that you do as well, um, as well as personally. Um, so let's talk about that now. We're segueing into, I guess, the safety side of this chat and 
having all these skills that you've attained over the last few years, starting, you know, as on horseback and then as a runner and then with the road gaining, and then you joined the rural fire service. Um, let's talk about that. Like, obviously in a role in like, you know, like you do with the rural fire service, you need to have these kind of skills. You're going out into the bush to either fight fires or rescue people. You know, I guess for you, yes, you do have to have that. But for the everyday warrior like myself, we don't have these skills. However, we need these skills <laughs> and we need not only those skills, we need to know about safety on the trails. So backstory is a few weeks ago, um, my husband and I went for an adventure to Glenbrook like we've done many, many times and he wanted to try, uh, he'd mapped a route, he'd, he'd uh, synced it up on his Sunto uh, that was new, a new, a relatively new watch. And as we were running, we noticed early on that the Sunto wasn't connecting to the map, um, which was fine because we were on trails that we knew at that time. However, there was a particular trail that he wanted to take that day that we'd never done before. Uh, from memory, I can't think what the trail was called. But anyway, it went down a, along the edge of the ridgeline and then it went down steep, steep mountain uh, to the valley below and cross the creek and then back the other side. And I wasn't keen to take this trail, but he really wanted to go on it. Um, and that morning we had an argument about safety gear because I knew that if I was going to take any trail, well, not even the fact that I was going on a new trail at all, but I should always carry safety gear regardless of where I'm going. But particularly if I'm going to be going anywhere new, um, and he hadn't brought any <laughs> safety gear. So no snake bandage, no thermal blanket, no rain jacket, no thermal, nothing um, to keep him safe if something, you know, his misadventure had happened. Um, so that was, you know, the start of the adventure was not great. And that was before we'd even got out of the car. Um, Married, please. <laughs> yeah. But uh, fast forward, he did decide to take the trail and I decided not to and straight away felt uneasy about that when I started running off and he did 10 minutes later he was lost not only 10 minutes from when I left him he'd gone to, he had not even gone even gone on the trail he was off the trail straight down the side of the mountain and ended up on a cliff where he needed a helicopter rescue so you know it you know we always think that things like this aren't going to happen to us. And I mean, I live on a trail, it backs onto my house and I go running on there numerous times a week. And I can tell you there's many times I just head out the door with nothing, just me, just me. I don't even take my phone. I have nothing. And there's snakes out there. There's rocks. I could roll my ankle. Anything could happen and I'm stuck. So I thought this would be a really good topic today to talk about because I see lots of women obviously running in RMA on trails, some remote, some not so remote, some on their own, some in groups. And we think that this, you know, that things might not happen to us. So this is where we start talking about safety. So obviously being in rescue uh, in your new role as the aviation in the aviation rescue crew, you must see so many things that lead you to think that people need to be more prepared on their adventures. What are some of the things that you see as an outsider or in your role that you've seen during rescues? 
Um, I think Mark has learnt a very important lesson, never trust your tech. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so when you are remote, and I suppose, you know, like as you said, if you go out your trail behind your house, it's a completely different story to when you are in a truly remote area or even, and it doesn't have to be that far away to be considered remote. Um, the Glenbrook National Park, as people may not or may not know, is, is not very far from anywhere. It's very close to everywhere. And as soon as you said that you were where Mark was, I knew exactly where he was lost because it is a tricky trail to find. And if he was he was relying on his tech, as soon as you go outside of phone service, a couple of things happen. One is obviously you, you can't ring and, and clarify and you can't make phone calls. Two is your battery in your phone will go dead very quickly because it will continue to search for satellites and it will run your phone battery dead. So you can very quickly, within an hour or so, be somewhere where even though you're not very many kilometers from help you don't know where you are or you get stuck like Mark did um, and you can't get in or out and you can't get help um, so trusting your tech is I think something um, it's a little bit of a trick you probably need to if you're going to go somewhere you don't know you need to think about looking at the maps before you go. Mm. And I think that's the thing is a little bit of preparation goes a long way. If you're just going out the back and your trails at home, please take your phone at least, yeah. not because you might need it, um, but because the one day you don't have it is the one day you will need it. And it may not even be you. You might come across somebody who needs you to call for help. Mm. But at the very little minimum, take your phone. But if you are going to go somewhere, particularly remote um, mountains and gorges and rivers and things, Think about um, before you go, particularly weather. Um, so, I mean, at the moment we have flood weather um, and a, a river may be okay for you to cross on the way out and you might go for a run and it might rain in the catchment area, not where you are, but in the catchment area for that creek or that gorge. And it may not even be a significant sized creek or gorge, but it just may, may be a, a, a very heavy shower in the catchment area for that gorge. And an hour later when you come back, this creek line, this creek that was only sort of, you know, uh, covering your shoes maybe up to your ankles on the way out, maybe up to your shins or your knees or higher on the way back. And anyone who's done their swift water awareness training, which I have, knows that knee height is enough to kill you. Mm. It can knock you over. You only need a slippery rock or a hole that wasn't there before because um, something's dislodged in the creek bed or in the causeway. You've all seen pictures of roads once um, floodwater's been through them. That can happen in your creeks. And it only needs to be knee height to knock you over. And if you hit your head on the way down or you get tangled in a snare, such as a, um, a log or a, or a stick or some debris of some sort, you can very, very quickly drown. And I know that that's like worst, worst case scenario, but you know, let's not take these risks. And the other one is fire um, weather. Like a lot of people, I mean, I've, I've seen runners out on trails in fire weather and, and I did a rescue a few years ago near you, actually, Nicole, the Royal National Park. This fellow, it was a, a weekend and he'd gone out for this lovely long bush walk in the Royal National Park on a pretty well-marked trail and he'd had a swim and it was just a lovely day out and he turned around and he was heading back um, towards the train station um, at, I think it was a waterfall train station. 
and he was he'd had a lovely day out. What he didn't know is um, walking along the tree line trail that he was on, he was facing south. What he didn't know is behind him, an arsonist had lit three fires and it had become Armageddon behind him. So we had every helicopter, surf rescue, police, national parks, uh, New South Wales Rural Fire Service, which was obviously, um, I was in one of those helicopters, searching every single trail in the Royal National Park, just getting people out. Mm. Because this thing had just become this huge big wall of black smoke and flames and it was just roaring and you probably remember the fire mm. and this fellow was just walking along and it was behind him and he couldn't smell smoke yet because it was just so intense the smoke was all just mm. going straight up and it was really quite dangerous he had no idea until some woman jumped out of a helicopter and grabbed him and mm. pulled him into the helicopter and it That's wasn't cool. until we lifted above the trees and I pointed to this huge big wall of black and flames that he just was like crap and he had no idea because mm -hmm. even though he'd, he'd gone out for a walk for a swim on a hot day and he hadn't thought that you know his day could go so badly he was a long way from um, a, a way out mm -hmm. and he had no idea that somebody, you know, that I mean, you're not in control of how a fire starts. It could have been a lightning ban two days before. Um, it could just be an accident. You know, you, you know, the fires can just start. So I guess for me, the main thing is um, think about where you're going to go. If it is going to be high fire danger or very high fire danger in your area, maybe don't go remote that day. Maybe sort of stick around the trails that are a little bit more urban fringe or have more than one escape route. Think about maybe staying in the cooler, damper valleys that day for your run, but as long as you still have more than one escape route. And, and again, with the flood weather, just maybe that's the day to go up in the hills and, and, and do some, some hill climbs and stuff because even though you won't be able to see because it's all fogged in, at least you're less likely to get stuck in, in, in a creek and, mm. and, and drown. And what people need to remember is, you know, like if you call for help, um, if you if you use a PLB or something, it could be three hours before someone can get to you. But it, it only takes three minutes to, to drown. Like you, it could be a long time um, and you could get yourself in, into a lot of trouble um, until we can get to you. And if, you know, if, if the weather is really crap and it, the cloud is low or it's really smoky and it's really, really bad fire weather, we may not be able to get to you because it's just not safe for us to fly. And other emergency services, ground-based emergency services, might just be so completely overwhelmed fighting the fire um, that they just can't get get to you. So think before you hike is obviously a, a bushwalker's motto, and I think think before you run. Um, just choose a route that's still going to be fun, still going to be beautiful, still going to give you the kilometres that you want to do that day. But just think in whether that is extreme, whether that's fire weather or flood weather, as to whether that's the best day to go remote. Mm, I love all of what you just said. And I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, even when we went, the day before had been really wet and rainy and foggy. And had it been that day, the helicopter may not have been able to fly in to get Mark. Had it also been, I mean, we were lucky that when you say, you know, remote, I guess he was kind of remote in his location, yet he wasn't remote across the valley where like houses literally. Like in Denver. Yep. However, the, the ground crew could not get to him. 
So the helicopter, luckily the weather was good, was the safest option to get him out of where he was. And luckily he had bone reception. I hate to think if he had been anywhere without that, I don't know where he would have been. I guess as a support runner with him that day running together, that was our godsend is that he was with someone when he left that location because I knew exactly the area he was in. So, and into the point where I was uneasy about him going, I noted down the time when I ran off on my phone, 9.49. I remember it clear as day. If he's not back at the car at 11, I'm calling for help. That's what was in my head. And 10 minutes later, he was calling me for help. So, you know, I guess that, you know, there's times when people go out on trails and they don't have any phone reception. They haven't told anybody where they're going. And that's when it becomes really dangerous. That is the biggest thing. Tell someone where you're going, where you're planning to go. When you're, when you're planning to leave your car and when you're planning to get back, especially if you are going remote. And like you said, remote can be within a kilometre of houses but just mm. remote to get to yeah. access, remote access rather than remote, remote. Um, you know, if I go out walking or running here in the National Park on my own, I always tell my friend Christy where I'll be mm. and what time I anticipate to get back because I know that she knows the area well and she will make sure that somebody comes to look for me if I don't check in with her. Yeah. And it's just it's just not a silly thing to do at all. I know it seems crazy. I'm only going out for an hour on trails that I know, but it's just so important to just tell someone where you're going to be. I, I might even tell my dad who lives in Perth, hey, Dad, I'm going to go on this track. I'll be back in an hour. Um, but at least somebody knows kind of where the search parties can start looking for you. And that makes a huge difference. I mean, I knew, I, I mean, I, I, know, I know the trail that Mark um, got stuck on. Um, if, I, if I had been on that rescue crew that day, I would have known exactly where to start looking for him. And the likely, you know, we do tend to make the same mistakes as humans. Um, you know, they're, they're, the police have, um, you know, very, um, strong kind of uh, rep repetitions in behaviour. You know, they know where, how people get off trail, you know, how they get pulled by contours along ridge lines. They know how um, people tend to go either up to get phone reception or down to get water. So they know how to plan searches and the police would have had very little trouble finding Mark that day, but only because they knew where to start looking and what area to look in. So that was just so good that you took note of that and I think we all just need to make sure even if it's just a text to somebody or a message to someone saying I'm going here I'm going this direction I'll be three hours and they will just make just trust that you know obviously you need to have someone that you know will check in with you mm. in that three hours and make sure that you know that can at least give the police a start point yeah so in your role um at the moment doing these rescues like what do you find the hardest part of that role? The hardest part is when you can't get to them. Mm. So uh, day before yesterday, day before yesterday, um, I was called to a job where there was two campers missing in a valley. Um, it was thought that they were in a four-wheel drive and they had tried to cross a river that had become swollen. Um, so we had a search area to go and 
look for them and we couldn't get in there like we flew as far as we could until this the fog and the cloud was just so low that we just couldn't there's no way we just couldn't get there um and that's happened to me both in fire and in flood we had, the smoke was so thick we just you can't safely keep flying forward um you you, you can't risk running into another aircraft or wires or a mountain um, because you know yes there are two people whose lives may be at, under threat but you can't risk a pilot and an air crew officer and a rescue crew officer as well mm. um, going into weather or terrain that you just can't fly and the same goes for ground crews you know there's no point sending um, you know a flood rescue team in where they can't safely get back out again there's no point sending an abseiling police rescue team down a cliff they can't safely extract from mm. and and that that's the hardest thing is is you know that um somebody is potentially having the worst day of their life and and you just can't get there to help them that that that's hard and if they do tend if they do manage to get rescued by another means or they weren't there in the first place and it was just a good intent call or something that's the best case scenario but sometimes it doesn't work that way mm. and i guess that's you know where we can talk about preparation is key when we're going on any type of adventure especially if we're going remote you know um i mean they're in a vehicle but still you know and not you know, not taking the risk, not crossing the flooded creeks and, but carrying the right kind of gear. Um, so, you know, the day that Mark went, he didn't have any gear. All he had was his, I mean, no, he didn't have no gear, but he, he had his pack. So he was in singlets and a t-shirt. Luckily it was a warmish day. It wasn't cold. It wasn't hot. It was actually just pleasant. Um, it, he had singlet t-shirt. He had his running pack. He probably had to one and a half litres of water. Uh, maybe he had a litre left. He had some uh, like a gel and a few little nuts or something uh, that he hadn't eaten, but that's all he had. So he didn't have a thermal top. He didn't have a rain jacket. He didn't have a snake bandage. He didn't have a um, emergency blanket. Like the two things that stood out to me that he should have had on him was an emergency blanket and a snake bandage. <laughs> that were the two main things I, I thought, and obviously his phone, um, and he didn't have that. And the reason that straight away I panicked when he told me he was stuck was not because we didn't know where he was because I knew the location roughly of where he was going to be. And luckily he had a phone that he was able to download his location directly to, you know, the emergency app. He could have been waiting there a long time and he was wet from sweat. And luckily the sun was out, but had this, it been the day before or the weather came in, he would have got cold very, very quickly. And he had nothing to keep him warm. He had a little bit of food and water, but he had nothing to keep him warm. And that's what I was worried about the most is that he had nothing to keep him warm. So what are some of the things that at a minimum, I mean, I know you said to carry your phone, but what's some of the things that you would say people should definitely be carrying with them if they're heading out for a trail run in the bush? Well, I think you've, you've covered a few of them there. And I think anyone who's done a trail run has seen this huge long list of mandatory equipment that they have to carry. And they're like, they want to 
ditch as much of it as they can and minimize that as much as they can because of the weight and blah 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 but there's a reason why we're asked to take that equipment and I think um, there's there's plenty of videos out there or we'll make one even if we have to about um, you know why we why we take this equipment and and how and when you should use it Um, I think you know I have a little pack um, even I've got it. I've just got it here, actually. Um, even when I just go um, for a short trail run, I have a little um, Ziploc bag. It's just a medium-sized Ziploc bag that has a few essentials in it. I leave it zipped up, um, and that just goes slides into my smallest little pack. Um, in, I've got a tiny little pack that I carry if I'm just going to go out for a short trail run. Um, you've met my friend Twee. Yep. Short trail runs with Twee tend to become adventures. She mm-hmm. likes to she likes to extend them and change them. So I always, always, always carry this little pack. Um, so in this little pack is obviously two snake bandages, yep. um, toilet paper. Yep. I consider that an essential. There's a bandage. Um, there's antihistamine. Um, I know that if I get bitten by an ant that I'll swell up and and maybe um you know react to that so i have an antihistamine in there there's an emergency space blanket um there's a whistle there's some waterproof matches and a normal bandage and um you know that sort of thing is in there and that that can just it's so light it's so small it just stays packed and i just put it into whichever pack that i'm going to take with me mm. obviously take more water than you think yes it's heavy yeah. but especially if you're on a training run or you're just out for a bit of an adventure, if you decide to extend your run or if for some reason it takes longer than you think or you decide to try a new trail or something like that, you've got the water to be able to do it safely. And obviously some some calories, um, you know, even if you don't, aren't one of those people who normally goes out long enough to eat something, just have a couple of nut bars or something like that in your pack just mm-hmm. as a just for that worst-case scenario like Mark had the other day. Um, I also have in a plastic bag a headlamp and some spare batteries um, because you've met my friend Twee. Um, (laughs) A 5K run can turn out to be a nighttime thing. Um, And obviously um, I carry a compass because um, apart from the fact that I love them, um, (laughs) you can't always guarantee that your phone will um, have battery it may be that you've gone somewhere where there's no service it's been searching for satellites and you didn't realize it's gone flat if I'm going for a length of time I might even take a little portable charger and a, and a charging wire as well mm. for that um, and then um, on top of sort of all of those sort of things your snake bandage and your space blanket a thermal top it's light shove it in the bottom even if you just keep the top part of you kind of warm where your organs are, you know, even in the worst, you know, Canangra Boyd or somewhere like that where it's snowing, you might, you might, you know, lose fingers and toes to frostbite and probably not in Australia, but um, at least you can, you can sort of survive long enough to get rescued. And I suppose in, in, in saying all of this, you're carrying equipment and enough stuff to survive. It's not going to be comfortable. You're not going to be having the best day of your life. Yeah. It's not going to be, you know, champagne on the on the on the balcony. It's going to be you're having a crap day if you have to use this stuff. But if you don't have it, it could turn a crap day into into a deadly day. And that that's that's why I carry all of that. Even literally, I carried that on eight kilometers the other day. Mm. Um, and then some kind of tracking device if I'm going to go 
remote or away from where I know that there is phone service or an easy access to phone service. Um, so I carry a small PLB. Um, it's really tiny and obviously um, know how to use it. So um, I think everyone needs to, to have some kind of tracking device. Um, you know how to use it. It won't work in a gorge. It will take a long time for that signal to be transmitted into something where somebody actually turns up to save you. So be aware of that mm -hmm. and, and also sort of know your first aid. So this is, comes into that preparation. It's not always just about the gear that you take with you, but I think every parent, every person, every trail runner should have up-to-date first aid. Mm. I, like you can do it for $120 down the road here with the lady and it's every three years you go and spend half a day or a day um, just refreshing your skills. Um, you do your CPR every year. Just refresh your skills because... If you know what to do, if you've got those memory slides and those those thoughts of that process, your doctor's A, B, C, D and all that sort of stuff, at least if you do get into that situation, it's you're not such a deer in the headlights going, oh, crap, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. um, at least you have some idea. Okay, first thing I need to do. Okay, danger. What's the risks here? What Look mm -hmm. around. You know, send for help nice and early because... You know, the, the earlier I send for help, the, the earlier somebody can access me and, and, and get to me and those sorts of things. And I think people always think, oh, you know, you've got to get to water because you're going to die of thirst. Well, it takes three days to die of thirst, mm. but you can die from exposure in minutes. Yeah. Like it's much, yeah. much quicker. And mm. so when we start to think about remote area survival, it is much more about, you know, having that space blanket and having that those warm clothes or shade, um, having that protection from heat if it's fire or from from cold, um, particularly if you do fall into cold water. Mm. I know um, seven-minute survival in, in cold water in wintertime, even in Australia, if, even in Australia for some places, you know, you'll die much quicker from having no air or from having, you know, in, in, you, can, you can die in, in hours from exposure even when you're not in the water. So three minutes, the three, rule of threes, I think I got taught three minutes without air, three minutes without, three hours without shelter, three days without water, three weeks without food and somewhere in there was about three hours without Facebook as well. But um, <laughs> <laughs> three hours, you know, even in the air, that's not even talking about extreme snow, it's not even talking about um, extreme conditions. Three hours you can start to if not die, at least go into shock and start. If you add an injury into that, you can start to ha have have some real serious mm. sequelae. And, and I think, you know, yes, we're talking doom and gloom here, but you've just explained to everybody just how quickly mm. things can just go wrong. And, and even when you are in a, in a populated area, it's yeah. not about being remote as in miles from anywhere. It's about being remote as in how hard it is to access you. Yeah. I mean, uh, there were so many lessons that came out of the other weekend. And I mean, one of the things was when um, Mark called me firstly, I mean, I went into action mode straight away and I have done my first date and it's up to date. I only just finished, like did it this week on Wednesday, up to date, full first aid certificate, including my CPR um, so I feel so much more, uh, refreshed and confident around that now. Um, 
I also went and bought a, a PBL. I bought a Garmin InReach for those that are interested in what it is. Um, it's not the cheapest option, but it is something that now I feel I have peace of mind when I head out on the trails. I know how to use it. If I, I hope I never have to use it, but I know that I will carry it with me every time I go on a trail that doesn't have service, <laughs> like it'll be coming with me in my pack. Um, and, you know, when Mark was on this trail, he was lucky enough to be um, on, he was on a cliff line, I guess there was a little cave there. So I knew that if something, if he wasn't able to be rescued straight away, he was able to have some shelter. It was quite warmish. The sun was out. So he'd taken off his singlet and he was drying it out on the rock so that if he had to, you know, stay warm, he was able to do that with a drier shirt. So there was all different things I told him to preserve his water, preserve his food. Like, so there was all these things that I'd learned over time to be able to tell him to do, do not move, to stay where you are. And as a, a person myself who was in the vicinity, I straight away was thinking because a, a bike rider came um, along when I was panicking at the initial phone call and um, we were both able to call emergency services, but also we we're both able to work out a plan that he would head that direction on his bike to keep watch for if Mark, you know, if he could see him or hear him, he was not going to go find him. And I was to head back and get changed into dry clothing because just standing there making a phone call, literally in the 15 minutes from he rang me, I was starting to get cold, like, because I was wet. So, you know, the safety wasn't just about Mark, it was about the other people in the group as well. So he wasn't going to go and try and find him. And I made it very clear to that guy not to try and find him because I knew that safety was on its way, uh, rescue was on its way and he was going to be safe eventually. Um, whereas if he'd tried to find him, we could have had two people lost or, you know, worse could happen. So I guess, you know, it's not only about carrying the gear, it's knowing what to do in the situation, staying calm um, and having, you know, the devices that can help you as well if you need. Um, we've talked about the weather as well and not going out in inclement weather if we can help it or finding different locations to go. Um, what about um, if we did get stuck, what are some practical things that we could do to help us stay safe until help arrives? Um, well, I guess, you know, keep yourselves safe, get yourself safe. Like if there's any first aid that needs to be done or whatever, I guess don't make it worse is the, is the big thing. You know, like Mark stayed where he was. Mm. That was so important because you had a general search area, which luckily wasn't very big, mm. um, for the police to, to plan their search. And he stayed where he was. So at least the last known location of Mark was not very far from where he was. Mm. If you do start to, to, to move around, then it, it, if there is a last known location, that, that can make things harder. Um, Obviously, you know, you can use the terrain around you to, to navigate and give you an idea of where you are. So think about, you know, like where Mark was, you know, there was a, a, a gorge, you know, that's a huge landmark. It's like, okay, I know I'm on the gorge. Which gorge am I on? And, and 
he could have, if he had his compass with him, he could have worked out that because the gorge that he was facing was an east-west running gorge, he could have worked out that he was in the Glenbrook Creek Gorge and not on the Nepean Gorge, you know, things like that. You can use uh, the direction of a valley um, to help you to, to work out where you are. Um, and also, you know, looking at the high points around you, you can kind of get an idea, well, you know, if, if that if that larger mountain is slightly to the south of this, this ridge line, then that must be that mountain on the map and so therefore I'm on the wrong side of it or whatever. So that can help you with with kind of working out where you are. Um, police will base their search on your last known location, reported location, and where you were supposed to be um, so I guess one thing is, you know, just making sure that you, you if you stay where, staying where you are, try and maybe make yourself visible. Put your toilet paper in the trees so that they can see it or get your space blanket out. It is sparkly and people in helicopters like sparkly things. We love shiny things. Mm -hmm. um, so we can see that stuff. Get it out and put it out on display. You can you can write help in the sand. Like you can do those things and that that sort of stuff will help. Um, if for some reason you can't stay where you are, if it's not safe to stay where you are, then then think about where is the next safest and most logical place to move to. Um, if you're in a gorge, you need to put your PLB where it can see the sky. It can't it can't be uh, found. Amsar can't can't start a, a search for you if your PLB is in a cave. It needs to be out. You, you might need to just move out and put your PLB out in in the middle of the gorge. Um, it may be that you need to move to higher ground to get phone service and, and that's, that's fine as long as, you know, you can get phone service and you can, if, you, if there's somebody hurt, you need to get back to, you know that you can get back to that person, that they are stable, that they are safe to be left, things like that. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of this stuff is always going to be, each scenario is different and it, the answer is always going to be it depends. Mm. So, um one of the things that we do as a crew every single time we go out, even like very routine, is we constantly chit-chat just like you and Mark did in the car. We're always talking about things that people would think, you know, you guys are rescue crew, you're, you know, why are you talking about the weather and why are you talking about the direction of that of that gorge and why are you, why are you checking the bomb site the, regularly to see where the clouds are? But that's just part of what we call patter. We're always talking about that stuff and it's, it builds good crew continuity and good crew resource management and means that we're all on the same page. Mm. So by you and your your running buddies always talking about, has everyone had a look, seen that big black cloud over there? What do you think are the consequences of that? Well, we might need to make sure that, you know, we, we take the high trail instead of the low trail because if that big black cloud means rain, the river might be cut. What do you think that big pole of smoke means? Oh, maybe we should get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> all that sort of thing. But have those conversations constantly and um, and I guess think about, you know, if somebody is injured, you've got to, to give them first aid and stabilise them and, and if you can stay with them, please do. But if you can't because you need to get get help somehow, um, then make sure that, you know, it's very clearly marked where they are and you can you can get back to them. It's preferable mm -hmm. to stay with them if you can but because you may, they may need more help. But mm -hmm. every situation is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you're on your own, it's a completely different story. You've gone and got to work that out for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but knowing how, like where you are, knowing the conditions that you can likely to expect 
um, knowing that, you know, local weather effects, you know, in this valley it always gets really windy um, because it get, the wind gets funneled. So if there is a fire, the fire is likely to go here or there. Knowing those sorts of things and making sure that you're prepared, you've done all the right things, you've got the gear you need, you've told people where you are and, and how to get um, hold of you. And, and you mentioned the Emergency Plus app. Mm. Um, that will work even when you don't have phone service. So that works on GPS but not phone towers. So if you've got the, the Emergency Plus app, you can at least somehow get that information out or to somebody. Um, that will give us a really good pinpoint, like a, a lat long we call it, of exactly where you are. So if, you, if you're going to use that, use the lat long if, you, if you're trying to get aviation resources in there. That's really accurate. It gives us a really um, good good idea of exactly where you are, and that that works worldwide. Latlong works worldwide, so yeah, um, that that's what we're using aviation and 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 obviously in the ocean as well because it works worldwide. The the grid coordinates for a map are more local, and that's fine if you're getting help locally. Um, so yeah, have the app and know how to use it. Yeah, I mean, that's what they used to find Mark was he was able to. Luckily, he didn't have it on his phone, but because I had reception and I was able to talk to him while I was on the phone with the police, they they said to me, you know, can you message him to tell him to download the Emergency Pass app? And then they sent his, you know, we sent his number and they were able to call him and he was able to tell them exactly the coordinates so they could find him. And the other thing that he had when they came to look for him was um, he was wearing a bright blue hat. So he was able to wave the bright blue hat so they could find him straight away because he was, I mean, I was covered in trees there and you need something bright to show that that's where he was. Yeah, so, perfect. Yeah, it was pretty perfect. I mean, this is a good ending, but it doesn't always end good. You know, it doesn't always end good. And unfortunately, I'm sure there's times when that's happened for you as a rescue crew that hasn't always ended well um, which is why we need to be prepared and as best we can be and I guess there's still times when we are prepared as best we can be and things still don't end well so but we need to try and be prepared the best we can I mean what um one question I didn't ask you that I'm really interested in finding out is what led you to want to do a role like this um as with everything, I think it's always, it's a convoluted story and it becomes, it sort of, you evolve into different stages and phases of your life. So, um, yeah, I was a virologist, a dance teacher, and um, when I was married, um, we moved around a lot. My husband was in the military and we moved to this um, small community and we had the philosophy that you engage with and live in the community that you're in so don't think about oh i miss i miss living in on the sunshine coast or the miss canberra whatever it is engage with the community that you've moved into and the community that i've moved into there is nothing else except for a fire shed there's no oh it's a temporary preschool but there's nothing else here and it is a very high fire danger area as well um the gospers mountain fire came to within a couple of k's of, of my place and it was all around here um, so we joined the RFS and it gave us a sense of community, it gave us instant friends, um, somewhat like being an RMA, wherever you go, there are friends. <laughs> and from there, um, my training officer was fantastic and 
he one day we were at a fire and he went flying a helicopter to to do some recon work and he got back and I'm like how do I get in one of those things and he gave me the pathway was to join the remote area firefighting team which uh, in which you learn wildfire behavior and weather and survival skills and navigation skills and I got to travel all around Australia with that that was just the coolest thing ever I went to um, drove little uh, tiny little strikers through the Victorian high country Tasmania saw some I mean obviously we're only there because it's on fire and that's a bad thing but we did get to you know go with cool people great people and, and travel around even um, I did the six inch trail once over in WA um, and then three weeks later it was all on fire and coming back to that it was like oh I know exactly what kind of fire behavior is going to be here because I know the terrain I know the weather here I know the, the types of vegetation here because I just ran 46 kilometers here so yeah. <laughs> um yeah so getting into the remote area team was great and then from there uh, I think it was about 2014 um an expression of interest went out for um the formation of an aviation rescue crew and I put my hand up and and became um, a firefighter who could also do um, dual winch operations. So as a, as a remote area firefighter, you can winch into a remote fire and fight that fire using ground-based methods and calling helicopter buckets in and things like that. Whereas this was then you could have a second person on the wire um, with you and you could extract them from a tricky situation where nobody, you know, no other means of extraction are available. Um, and from that, we developed over years our search and rescue capability in the RFS and that went from sort of fire situations was the main reason that that capability was developed to also assisting with flood rescues. And um, obviously we've been very, very busy in the last 12 months with flood rescues and then obviously looking for missing persons um, you know, outside of flood and fire. Um, so, you know, that's a huge training commitment, huge, like huge yeah. to anything in aviation is a huge, huge commitment. Um, about a year ago, um, they were looking for someone to train and assess a Cert 3 in aviation rescue crew. Um, and so I started doing that job and I've had the pleasure of being able to train 12 people um, through their Cert 3 to become, in fact, uh, today is the first day one of my little baby birds is flying the nest and um, is on a flood rescue deployment today for the very first day. So I then from there becoming being a trainer and assessor uh, for the RFS in aviation and particularly in aviation rescue ended up with a permanent job in that. So it, as with anything it kind of evolved from hey I'm going to be moving into this area to now it's my life. Mm. that's how everything turns out though isn't it it's incredible like it's so cool I mean oh even just watching them the other weekend and like Mark was like he was told that they were going to um there was going to be a ground crew that was going to try and come to him first and they passed me in the in the vehicle and I flagged them down and they said yeah we're going to try and like rope him down and whatever and then they must have changed their mind and then um anyway the guy who was winched down first, he just stood there next to Mark and Mark was like looking at him and he's like, so what's the plan? And he said, he said nothing. And then all of a sudden he's like strapping his harness onto Mark and Mark's like, are we, are we 
going up on that and he's like yep and he's like oh my goodness like oh my gosh like strap yourself in he said it was the most terrifying and exhilarating thing that's ever happened like and, I, and i've got video of it because the guy who was on the bike was standing on the top of the lookout watching the whole thing so he was able to send me which is so good to watch back this incredible winching of my husband out of the bush into a helicopter like it's it's incredible like the work that you guys do is amazing and um like i just i can't thank them enough and people like you who really risk your own lives to you know, help other people. Like it's a very selfless job, but at the same time I was talking to the rescue crew when they dropped him off and there was two guys from Polair standing there and they just love it. <laughs> like they live for it. It's like they're these adrenaline junkies. They love it. It's like, there's a rescue. Yes. It's like, they were just like thinking like they were saying they do oh, thousands and thousands of these things every year in the Blue Mountains alone. So it's incredible the work it's that you It's always do. nice when there's a good outcome. It's mm -hmm. exhilarating when you're able to help someone because, you know, I mean, Polar are incredible and, and all of the police, not even the, the air wing, you know, everybody who, who does any of these roles, whether it be a volunteer capacity, surf life-saving SES, RFS, like whether it's ground crews, boat crews, air wing they they do an incredible there's so much training like so much of their lives are spent preparing for the day that they may be able to help someone and we're not out there just to be cool we're out there because yeah. someone is having the worst day of their life somebody's terrified somebody's in danger somebody's about to get burnt or drown or hurt or lost or something you know that toll and ambos and everybody like they are out there because somebody's had the worst day of their life mm. and when you get a good outcome it is exhilarating it is you do like wow that was cool um but it isn't always a good outcome and i suppose our conversation today is is, is trying to maximize the chances of us not needing these services in the first place but then should you need them is, is is to maximize the chances of a good outcome you know that we can find you and that you will be in in a fit state and you will survive with minimal you know risk to yourself and and, and that's not just physically it's also uh, you know psychologically as well because you know sometimes these these events can can be really quite terrifying as well so there's, there's a hell of a lot to it and um yeah, they, they would have had a great time winching Mark off that cliff line because, you know, that's what they trained for and it was a great outcome. But if it hadn't been a great outcome, you know, those 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 guys have to deal with that as well. So, absolutely. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible humans. Well, um, I just wanted to finish up the podcast with the RMA Hot Lap because I love finishing up with these questions at the end. It just gives us a little bit more information about you you're an amazing ambassador for rma and as people have heard today you have such an interesting full life you're such a beautiful person you give back to the community in the most amazing way i've got tears in my eyes because i love you so much um and you've helped me so much as well um with my vision with rma so selflessly never never say no if i if i need your help for anything so i do want to say thank you um 
to that, you know, in lockdown, those that are listening, um, even though we're not in lockdown anymore, like Tova being a PT, like put her hand up to do these lockdown sessions for us because I just thought it'd be something that might lift people's spirits um, during lockdown and give them something to look forward to each day. And so we put these little workouts on the, the website and we've had great feedback. And, you know, it was just so lovely that you just gave your time so freely no questions asked to do something like that. So I do want to say thank you for that. And if anyone's still interested in, in doing those, they're on the website. Before I get onto the hot lap, I wanted to ask you this question. What is the most rewarding part of the connections that you have made in RMA? I'm so glad you asked. I thought you were going to skip that question. And I was like, I have to talk about <laughs> RMA. Um, I... Um, I, I'm so um, grateful for RMA and what I'm going to cry now um, <laughs> and what you guys, what everyone who's involved in RMA embodies. It is connection, it is community, it is people selflessly supporting each other. Um, I went to do a 100-kilometre run in the middle in Victoria one day and it was kind of like a, hmm, I'm going to go and do 100 kilometres next weekend. <laughs> and I put it on RMA. Hey, I'm going to go down to the Yu Yangs. Shout out to the Yu Yangs. Great event. Um, and do this 100K event. And Julie, as a party, just put her hand up and said, cool, I'll, I'll come and I'll pace you and I'll come and look after you and keep you company and look after your gear. And she was out until 3 o'clock in the morning because I'm so slow um, to be there to support me. And she'd never met me before. And mm -hmm. that is just... Julie is RMA like she's just the most beautiful beautiful person and I've only met her once but I feel like wherever you go in Australia or around the world there is somebody who will who will support you somebody who will love you somebody who will look after you who will give you um, a home a bed a spare snake bandage whatever it is I just I love that about RMA I love the community and I love what you've built there is so there's so much positivity and support there's never a, a bitchy word or a nastiness i've never seen any of that in rma and i think in this world there are so many you know natural disasters which is the world i live in and mm -hmm. you know floods and fires and pandemics and things like that i think there's no need for people to be awful to each other there's no need for any of that other stuff that we see outside of our little rma bubble mm -hmm. and so i just think rma is, is 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 beautiful for that and you've created that nicole thank you for from all of us for creating that but also thank you to every single person who is an rma for mm -hmm. continuing to embody the spirit of rma because without everybody getting on board and, and, in, and embodying that spirit, RMA wouldn't be what it is today. And it is just, it's a lifeline. It really is. It's just such a beautiful thing. Oh, thank you. And I totally agree with you. Like, I love it. And I, I mean, I've been on the other end of a receiving end like that when I went and did a race down in Victoria. Victoria must be something about Victoria, but uh, you know, Sophie and Sandra, never met them in my life, put their hand up, we'll crew you, we'll follow you around all day and brought their families and fed me and looked after me. I had never met them before. It was the most incredible experience that I remember, like running my first 100-kilometre race and having complete strangers give their time like that, like just amazing women in RMA. 
Right, let's get on to the hot lap. <laughs> so number one, what is your best safety tip? Choose wisely. Think about it before you go. Like it. What is your second best safety tip? <laughs> get help early if you need it. <laughs> yeah. Um, thing that you wouldn't leave without to go for a run? Uh, my uh, Sunto watch because um, I do run, run down under and I'm not doing a kilometre without it counting on my run down under. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm almost done. I've got to, I think um, I'm sort of calculating June, July, I'll be done. I'm in Perth and let's face it, it's the only way I'm getting to Perth at the moment. <laughs> oh, I just can't wait to get it done. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay. What's your favourite place? Where is your favourite place to run? Um, as I alluded to before, I can't choose one as long as it's mountains. Mm. Mountains. I love the mountains. Bush, trails, yeah. anywhere out there in the beautiful mountains. Yeah. Uh, and the last one is what's next for you on your adventures? Well, would you believe that I have huge, huge, audacious goals? Would you believe that? Oh, my goodness. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really into parkrun at the moment, and particularly since that's so accessible at mm -hmm. the moment, particularly I can, I can fit a parkrun in before my 9 o'clock aviation briefing. So wherever I am in the country, usually I can fit a parkrun. I did Burke the other day. How, while I was on rescue out there, how cool is that? Oh, that is cool. Get out to Burke. Great place. Anyhow, um, I want to do 100 kilometer event in every state and territory in Australia. So you want to do a 100k event in yep. every state in Australia. And what's your time frame? Um, I don't have a time frame because you know, obviously, I would have liked to have done it, you know, by now. But the last two years, I haven't done any. Um, but you know, no time frame, but yep. I do want to, before I can't do 100 kilometres anymore, I suppose, I want to be able to do 100 kilometres in every state and territory in Australia. So it can awesome. be trail, it can be a lap race, it can be a timed, you know, 24-hour track race, whatever. Yep. No no limits on, on how it's done or when it's done, but 100 kilometres in every state and territory in Australia. I love that. What a great goal. All right, well, I'll come crew you at one. Yeah, cool. I've done three already, so I'm on my way. Yeah, so what states have we got left? Um, I want to try and get to WA because that's where my family are. That'd yeah. be great. Um, and I've, I've entered a 24-hour race, the, the light horse, which is a path um, lap race. So I know I can, even with my current lack of, lack of fitness, I can hopefully potentially have a go at that. Um, I haven't yet done Tasmania got my eye on one there Queensland I've got my eye on one there I think the Northern Territory is going to be hard because I don't know if they have a 100 kilometer event so that might have to be um, something a timed event or something West Manchester um, maybe might have a yeah well I don't know if they've got 100 but Julie was trying to convince me to do something audacious there with 120 or something there mm -hmm. um I'll need a bit more fitness for that uh, and then I haven't done Canberra or ACT yet either. So I've still got a few to go, but, you know, awesome. I, I, can still, I can still put one foot in front of the other, so I don't care if I run them or if I walk them or if, you know, I hobble them. I don't care. Mm. Um, and I'd like to do them within 24 hours. Each one would be 100 kilometres within 24 hours. Oh, wow. Well, watch this space. I can't wait to follow along your journey. So where can we follow along your adventures? Do you post on 
any platforms, socials or anything like that? Um, well, when I was full-time PTing, I, I did, but mostly now um, I just post on the RMA community uh, forum. So mostly just share my adventures with RMAs because um, you, guys, you girls are the ones who are going to appreciate what I do. Um, so, yeah, just keep it fairly my circle small. Yeah, I love it. Well, thanks so much, Tova. Thank you for giving so much of your time to our community and also sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Nicole. Well, I hope you love this episode with Tova Gallagher and I hope that it's made you realise how important it is for us to be safe when we're out running on the trails. Maybe it's time for you to have a look at your first aid kit and the things that you carry with you when you head out for an adventure. Maybe it's time to brush up on some skills, head to your local first aid course and refresh that first aid training, or maybe even learn some orienteering and compass and map reading skills. If you'd like some information on any of the things that we've talked about, please reach out to me, or you can also reach out to Tova and I will put the details in our show notes. I want to thank our sponsor, Physiocram Australia, for partnering with us for this episode. And also, you can head to our website to sign up for our member program, which includes discounts to things such as Trail Survivor, which helps to keep us safe on the trails. And of course, safety gear, which you can get from our major partners. I look forward to bringing you the next episode of the podcast in a few weeks' time. Please share this episode with your friends and subscribe, rate and review. Until next time.